Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in Franklin, Tennessee, sitting outside at Crown Cigars and Ales. Thank you so much, Crown staff, for letting us hole out here for a handful of recordings a couple days ago and then again today. And I am with Matt Hammett, who Kay introduced me to. Matt, welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm fairly new still to Holy Smokes. I've only been a member now for maybe about a year or so. Yeah. My buddy Robert, who you spent time with last night, invited me into the group. And it's been an awesome way to connect with not just people here, but as you know, network on the road. And so there's actually been a couple of times now where I've had the chance to get to know guys in other cities as I've traveled and had some cool opportunities and experiences that way too. Well, you mentioned before we started recording that you're starting to work with an organization in, or you've been working, but now you're working part-time with them in the Colorado Springs area. And I was like, bro, you got to come on a Wednesday night. You got to come on a Wednesday night. We'll make it happen (laughs) for sure. So first question, what you smoking? So I wanted to represent local here with the at Saniki. Charles Robinson. Charles Robinson. So I've got the, uh, I think you say it, Emea or Amaya? And I I apologize that I'm not sure exactly how to say it properly, but great cigars. It's the more, it's the mild, but, um, yeah. You've and got one too there, I I've, see. I've, I've got Natsuniki, either Maduro, I forget the name of it. It's not named on the label, but yep. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good, a good stuff. One. It's a good one. Charles is such a, I've only had an opportunity to spend a little time with him once, and I was excited to meet him. And yeah. he's such a- Gentle. Yeah, that's exactly it. Everybody I talk to says, so gentle. And, you know, it's really a gift when you know somebody is fully engaged with you while they're with you. Yeah. And fully listening. Totally. Which, and fully present. Yes. We're such a distracted society that it's so easy. And I'm very guilty of this, especially in groups of people. Yeah. Where you just kind of get pulled away or distracted or it's kind of the convenient conversation. And, and I get it. That, that's the way it has to be sometimes. Yeah. But those moments that we spent together, though brief, it was like I walked away thinking, he was fully present for as long as he felt he should be present in our conversation to show love to me. Yeah. And that was really, I, it just spoke to me somehow. Yeah. 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 And his cigars are very good too. Yes. <laughs> Bonus. Yeah. And supporting a great ministry with mm-hmm. Red Road because w- yep. what they're doing within the Native American populations yeah. in, in the Dakotas and Alberta, Idaho, Washington, yeah. Arizona, et cetera. Uh-huh. Yeah, when uh, he was telling me about, again, just the gift of being present and spending time with the people on the reservations and finding out what their needs are, hearing about the way that he approaches that so relationally. Yeah. I love that. I actually, he's having a fundraiser here and I wanted to go. I'm out of town, unfortunately. But um, he's having, it's like a, a night where, I guess it was like a few different companies showing up. But I asked him, I said, well, is there a way for me to, to donate? And he said, yeah, you can actually make donations through at Saniki Charles. So it's the at symbol, at Saniki Charles. So, hey, if you're out there and you want to donate to Red Road, that's one way you can do it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, great ministry. Yeah. So, Matt, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Ohio. Where in Ohio? Toledo. Okay. Northwest Ohio, just on the edge of downtown Toledo and uh, kind of suburban and lived at the same house for 
from the day I was born until I was about 19 years old. Same, so, same. So what kind of home did you grow up in? Yeah, we, my parents lived in a very modest home and very, very diverse neighborhood. Really? Yeah, very diverse neighborhood. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I went to a private Christian school and there I was definitely not the minority, but in my neighborhood, I was actually the minority. So a lot of my friends were from all different ethnicities. And I, I like to see that as a real gift That's growing right. up to be yeah. just immersed in so many cultures and yeah. um, be around it so young. Cause you know, you see all the things going on now with, with race and gosh, it's interesting. It has been a bit of education for me cause I didn't grow up thinking about that too much, you know, um, just cause of, of the neighborhood I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it was, it was a gift to me. So my dad was a small business owner who had his share of hard knocks along yeah. the way. Yeah. But my parents were really wonderful people who just loved everybody the same. And they kind of taught me not to look at the exterior and just love people for exactly who they were and where they were. And not only that, but growing up in, the, in a Christian home, my parents were also taught me some really valuable lessons, even just about the church and having our faith in God and not people. We went through, I remember when we were a kid, like multiple church splits, mm. you know, and, and a lot oh. of people have been through that stuff. Yeah. I remember my parents always saying to me like, hey, look, we love our pastor. We love our people, no matter what they do, what, where they're hurting, how they react, we still love them. Yeah. And we still, you know, serve God, not men. Yeah. And those kinds of lessons too. Like, so I, I had really solid parents who really kept the main thing, the main thing in a lot of different ways. So yeah. I was blessed. Siblings. Yeah. I've got one brother. So he lived for a little bit in Ohio, met his wife there. And then he's two or uh, three years older than me. And then he actually moved off to China to be a missionary. What? Yep. Came back for a little while. And, and then now um, he's actually in Bolivia as a, it's doing missionary aviation. So it's been a, been a cool ride for him, watching him just serve God. He, I mean, he, he, was, he graduated like uh, top of his class for mechanical engineering at the University of Toledo and had great job offers, worked for Dana Corporation, Lockheed Martin in their nuclear submarine program wow. and left that to just go serve and raise support. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, just, just him and his journey and watching him just leave corporate life for the call. So just the yeah. two of you? Yeah, just the two of us. Yep. So what kind of kid were you growing up? <laughs> That's funny question. You know, my wife has asked my mom this question many times. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, she was like, well, your mom said that you were this way. And I'm like, man, I don't remember that at all. You know, but um, I was always creative, always interested in music. I liked the idea of sports. I played a little bit of basketball and soccer and like fifth through seventh grade. Yeah. And I always thought my coach was crazy for keeping me on the bench until I watched an old VHS tape recently at my mom's house. And I realized really quick why I, I was on the bench. Yeah. But yeah, I was always interested in music. Started out like basically in band, pet band, funny enough, playing the trumpet. <laughs> and then 
I got into playing guitar. My brother taught me how to play guitar when I was like 15. And yeah. that kind of really sent me in a whole different direction. You know, that, that's when music really became my life. And I met some guys at our, the, the private Christian school that I went to. They had a chapel service every week. And so I started playing with these guys in the chapel band. And so that was formative for me because then we became a band outside of chapel. Yeah. And named ourselves Sanctus Real when we were 16. And I didn't realize you guys started it that young. Yeah, I really had no idea that it would lead to, for me, they're still, they're still out there going, but for me, that would lead to 20 years yeah. of making music together. Yeah. Pretty wild. So what were you leaning towards? I mean, because kids, you know, as teenagers, often, not always, but often, we have kind of an idea of where we think we're going. Yeah. And where, where were you leaning towards before you picked up the guitar and that changed everything? I think... I had no idea. Really? Yeah, it was like when I when I picked up the guitar for the first time, and when I found uh, music and writing. Actually, when I when I played guitar, I knew right away that it wasn't so much even about the guitar to me. It was more about expressing yourself. Yeah, it was like it was a means to express myself through song, through yeah. melody and lyric. And I mean, it was like right away, pretty much right away, I knew like, okay, I want to be a songwriter. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I started, you know, leading some worship at my church. And that, that was one thing about being involved in our church, too, that was, was a big gift to me. And for so many artists who start in the church, I mean, it's a platform to be able to worship and sing and use your voice to express yourself. And so that was extremely formative for me. Mm -hmm. So so were you in Toledo at the time? That's, that's where yeah, you guys so started? Toledo Christian School, that was where we met. And we... Yeah, pretty much we stayed there too, man. So, so in 2001, we signed a record deal with Sparrow Records and everything was in Nashville. So like- But when, our, when did you guys actually start it? So 1996. 96. 96, when and we were then, 16 years old. Yeah. Started the band. And then we just got to the point where we were playing like, not only regionally, but we were traveling all over the country at that point by nice. 2000 just in our van and trailers and independent band playing youth conferences and all kinds of different events and booking everything independently. And we had a lot of really cool artists from Nashville at the time who we looked up to. Yeah. Really investing in us and inviting us to come to Nashville. Like and who? So like DC Talk, Toby yeah. Mack was yeah. looking at us for Goatee and then a band called Audio Adrenaline back in the day that we really appreciated um, their music. They also like came to Ohio and like did it showcase uh, they played and like had opened for us yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of fun, you know, it was pretty cool. And, um, so we, we did that and they wanted to sign us to a, a Flickr, which was their new label. And kind of started getting interest that way and just navigating that whole world of record labels. How was that for you guys as teenagers, early twenties, before you signed that record contract? Yeah. I mean, Traveling around in a van. What, what were those years like? Well, I look at those years now some, or sometimes with a little bit of, they're definitely nostalgic, you know, in the sense that we didn't need much to survive <laughs> and it was all passion, right? Yeah. And we didn't care. We didn't need to care. We didn't have families. We didn't need to care about making a living. It was all about the music yeah. and writing 
songs that spoke to us and spoke to other people. And it was the creative process together of being in a room and firing up the amps and, you know, like really just making music as a collective unit and whatever that chemistry was of being old friends and how that poured into the songs. Yeah. It, that's all it was about, you know? Where did the name Sanctus Real come from? <laughs> the question I've probably been asked more than any other yeah. question in my life, <laughs> which is fine. It's, my, it's our fault. <laughs> we, uh, our drummer came to us at rehearsal one day and we were trying to come up with a name and he said, hey, uh, I, I read this, found this cool word in the dictionary and he didn't know it was Latin, like sanctus, right? Mm-hmm. And but he, he just thought it was sanctus. <laughs> and it meant holy, him of praise, set apart. There were all these definitions that we were like, hey, as a Christian band, that's what we want to be. Yeah. And so he said, what if we called ourselves sanctus? And then the other guy was like, yeah, but we've got to put real in there because we want to be real. They're like, sanctus real, <laughs> cool, that's it. You know. So what we really ended up with, funny enough, was a Latin word pronounced like, just like white American kids would say it. And then an English word that could be Latin. So you get Sanctus Real, Sanctus, Sanctus Real, Sanctus. Sanctus Real. Yeah, it's Sanctus Real. All the you know, We had somebody th- who thought our name was Satan is Real one time. <laughs> yeah, so we got Santa is Real. People used to think that. We've got all kinds of funny things Santa that people thought. Real. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was the funniest one. What's the craziest story from those pre-signing the record contract years? Yeah, we, uh, we used to stay at host homes. When we were independent bands, so we'd go around. We couldn't afford hotels, and people would only pay us a couple hundred bucks to play. So we would always stay with people. And there was one group of guys who had a concert ministry out of a YMCA in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Just a little town. Yeah. And they said, hey, come to the show. We can hardly, can't pay you much, but we can't really afford a hotel either, but you can stay with us. Basically at their, their house where all their college guys bunked up together, you know? <laughs> and so we did the show and they had told us beforehand there might be this girl there that they were trying to reach in their community who was a, a, a Satan worshiper, they said, you know? Yeah. And we were like, okay, wow, well that, that sounds crazy. And uh, we're like, but okay, we're, you know, whatever, man, that's, that's cool. You guys yeah. are trying to reach this, this girl. And basically we didn't see it at the show. We go back to their house and we're just all sitting around, hanging out. They, they start some kind of card game or something. And all of a sudden there's this knock on the door yeah. and we, the door opens and it's this short little girl with like this huge dragon tattoo wrapped around her neck. Yeah. And we knew like right away, we're like, this is the girl. Yeah. She comes running into the house, jumps on the couch like a cannonball with her hands over her eyes. And she's looking at us through the slits in her fingers. And, and finally, <laughs> was, she, she, was she talking with you at no, all? She just, just lay, staring just, at she you. She just was in a little ball, just staring at us. And so right away we we're like, what is going on? This is so much weirder than we ever imagined. <laughs> well, it gets crazier because she sits at the table and starts playing cards. All of a sudden, she starts convulsing, like having a seizure. Yeah. Her chair falls back. She hits her head on the ground, and she just keeps convulsing. And they're like, she's filled with demons. We've got to pray over her, you know. And, and, like, they pull this mattress in, and they pull up on a mattress. And for, like, almost an hour, 
this girl was like convulsing and having seizures and her eyes were literally like rolled up in her head. And it was like, it was terrifying. And, Did they anyone... come, and we, we kind of thought she needed medical attention, but they were like, no, she just, she's possessed. And, and finally she stopped and she just like fell asleep. And they said, you know, she should really stay here tonight. Well, the mattress they had her on was on the ground behind the pullout couch where we were sleeping. And the guy walks in before he goes to bed, sits down on the edge of the, the pullout where we were. Three of us were like all like sardines, like terrified, yeah. laying next to each other, like yeah. supposed to sleep in these conditions. And, and he says, guys, sorry about what happened tonight. I know it's a little strange, but may no harm come against you faster than you can use the name of Jesus. And he walks into his room and we heard the bolt lock. <laughs> and the weirdest part was that the next morning we woke up and she was just like making like eggs and sausage and stuff with bring breakfast. Like nothing had ever happened with everybody. It was like, it was the weirdest thing. Was she social that morning then? And kind talking of, yeah. With you like she was talking with us. Yeah. And so looking back on it, it is kind of crazy. Like this girl might like, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Yeah. I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in the gifts that, you know, but I've also, yeah. also know sometimes people just need medical attention. Yes. And so I don't know which it was, but yeah. it's definitely one of the craziest stories that ever happened for us during that time. So you guys signed a contract. Who was the label? Yep. So we decided to sign with Sparrow Records. Sparrow, you know, now is a part of Universal, Universal Music Group and part of Capital Christian, yeah. basically is the, uh, it, was, it became Capital Christian Music Group. So, yeah. um, How did things change for you guys? We, yeah, I mean, radically, you know, we went from being a band that had, we're absolutely 100% broke, to only being partially broke. <laughs> but got all kinds of opportunities that opened up to us that we never dreamed could happen for us. You know, we really like what just, you know, being put out on a national level and marketed, you know, to national Christian radio and getting to travel internationally and all the things that we saw other bands do who are on record labels. Now, now things you can actually do without a record label, but back then you really needed a record label for it. Yeah. And so being distributed internationally on a major label uh, in Christian music was a, huge deal for us and something we had dreamed of but never really thought would happen for us so it was the beginning of uh making why, why, why did you think it would never happen i think you know we were kids getting ready to go into college and what were you guys planning on i think we weren't really sure i, th I think for me i thought well you know what i could take a job at a church and do, do the music ministry or, you know, be a worship pastor. Yeah. I didn't know. I knew I wanted to do music somehow, or maybe I could be a songwriter for other people. Or I didn't know, but I, I guess maybe I, I, I never imagined myself doing anything other than making music, but I just, I guess I'd never assumed that we could really make it in that way, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever making, and I'm making, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But to us, making it back then seemed like, wow, signing with a record label and getting on the radio and touring all over the world. And we got to do it. What were those years like, those early years? Yeah. After and I remember one of the most defining moments, memories for me was just watching our fan base grow and going from, you know, 100 people in a room to, you know, sometimes thousands of people in a room. And 
just realizing that our music was actually impacting people. People cared about our songs, hearing people sing our songs back to us. Um, I remember hearing our song on the radio for the first time in Albuquerque, New Mexico, driving through, you know, on M88, man, our first little punk pop song on Christian rock radio yeah, and blasting it, you know, but in the van and trailer, you know, on our way to a show first time out West. Yeah. So those moments, man, for us were, were big, big moments, exciting moments before, you know, you hit inevitably everybody when you grind really hard hits seasons of burnout or seasons of doubt or season of question, you know, I think those early years before, things got more complicated um, were really special. How did things get complicated? Yeah. Um, so like 2007, we were working on our third record called The Face of Love. And our career was growing numbers-wise, our album sales and our uh, visibility in the market. And more stations were adding our songs. and. Back then, there were three formats of Christian music. Now it's kind of pretty homogenous for the most part, but there was like rock, CHR, and then AC, right, which was the big format. So we were growing in the sense that we started having adult contemporary stations because we started as a rock band, right? So we didn't necessarily fit in with the real contemporary stuff. But those stations were starting to add our songs, and so we were actually making a little more money off of, not, still not a ton, but like making enough money to feel like we were making a living. But personally, it was like we were just starting to get worn out. We were we were driving ourselves, you know, 200 and sometimes up to 210, 220 dates a year, like wow. concerts, pulling our, hauling our own production, setting up our own production, doing all of our road crew work. So we would actually run a box truck and two members of the band would drive. One would drive the van and trailer. One would drive the box truck. We'd drive through the night to get to the next city, sleep when we could wake up, unload oh everything, gosh. set up, set up sound and lights, do a headlining concert for, you know, like at that time we were probably playing for like 700, 800 people a night. And then we would take the time to greet everybody who wanted to talk with us for, you know, it take sometimes up to a couple of hours. And the whole time we're thinking we got to tear all this down and drive through the night again. So no, no, knowing the importance of consistent quality sleep, I could imagine how, how much that would push you to burn oh, out yeah. because... You, you need a regular circadian rhythm to yeah. really maximize your sleep. Absolutely. And we started getting to the point where I started like, it was taking take a lot more work for me to keep my vocals strong because I'm singing every night and I'm getting no sleep. You know, we started getting to the age where like family members were getting sick. Like I remember Mark's dad got cancer and our grandparents started passing away. We had a divorce. One of the members who come into our band a little later, he was an original member, went through a, a divorce and his wife was on the road with us at the time. And so kind of some of the realities of like, of life started kind of hitting us, you know, and. Did it strain the relationships at yeah, all? All uh, of that, the bur- between the burnout and the exhaustion. Yeah. And, and it wasn't so much even in the band as much. We were always a really group, tight knit group of guys. Like we always had really good relationships with each other, which is what I think we're ultimately, and we had, we had a like mind. So like, how did you guys maintain that? Yeah, I don't know. I like, I think, I think we all had a real similar vision of what we wanted to see happen. Like, we really believed that our music was had it, to us. We just were never motivated by money or the numbers. Like, we were motivated by doing what we felt we were truly called to do. You know, making music together and 
you know, the temporal happiness of that and also the eternal value of that to us yeah. and what it meant to get the opportunity to sing songs that encouraged people. And at, at that level, it was like, it was important to us. This is a question I have a feeling I know the answer to, but did, between signing that contract, now looking back during those years that you were with the band, yeah. Did you feel you or any of the guys changed at all, like in a bad way? Did you ever let pride, ego, um, even, even though you guys were tight and it didn't seem like there were egos within the band, you, you ever look back and like, oh man, I was a dick. <laughs> you know, I think, and I always say this about every guy in the band, including myself, we a little bit had the opposite problem. The opposite problem for us was never feeling quite good enough. Really? Like we always struggle with it. I, at least I did, and I know all of us did, with scrutinizing ourselves. Yeah. Like, feeling like we were never working hard enough. We were never doing enough. We were maybe not, maybe we felt like we were even like, maybe why? not as, not a, maybe we just felt like we weren't as, I don't know why, felt like we weren't as talented as other bands, and so we had to work harder to like, you know, to maybe achieve what other people could achieve. There was just always this mentality of, the underdog kind of mentality more than the other way around. So I would say, I almost wish I would have had more confidence. I wish I would have had, we would have had a little more of like, yeah, like we're making it, we're doing this. We can do this. Like, like it's almost like, I think we could have had, there would have been a, a healthy level of embracing some things. Like people would always say to me like, man, you know, you're listening to this band, dude, like be confident, act like it, you know, <laughs> like, step into it but I always thought that little bit of timidity you know do you think things would have been different if you would have stepped into it oh uh, man that's, that's that's a really good question I don't know I, I don't think so I think I think it, it was our, our strength like humility I think was our strength in the end of like it kept us focused on on the right things which was hmm. we always felt like we were nothing without God being at the center of it and you know, but, but at the same time, there's a guy, I have a friend named Mike Donahue who was in a band called 10th Avenue North. I remember we were on tour together one time and he said something to me that he said, you know, there's kind of this mentality of like where you don't want to make things about you, but almost sometimes when you're too, too unsure of yourself, you're still making it about you. It's like a reverse form of pride. And I was like, dang, I like that really hit me. And that actually really was transformative for me because I feel like really? we did step into some years where I was like, you know what? I need to own what God has given me. Nice. Step into it, find my confidence and trust that it really is about him. And if it is about him, I don't have to do this whole like, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, you know, we're not working hard enough, always questioning and just accept the position we've been given and really walk in it, yeah. you know? So. When did yeah. you meet your wife? So my wife in 1999, we were both 19 years old and we got the same year we signed a record deal. We actually got married. Yeah. And so. When in 01 did you guys get married? Uh, July 14th, 2001. All right, a few months before Elizabeth and I. What's that? A few months before Elizabeth and I did. Really? No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, 2001, what a year that to be alive. That was yeah. crazy, that was crazy. Twin Towers were in 2001, Just 9-11. A, 
couple weeks before we got married. Wow, that changed the world. Oh my gosh, yeah. I, I remember that day, I mean, because I was coaching high school football, working full-time at Focus on the Family. Really? Yeah, yeah, I was Dr. Dobson's chief audio engineer. Oh, wow. I, I, at the time I wasn't, but I, I moved into his chief audio engineer position, working on the daily broadcast. Yeah. And yeah, I remember I was just so exhausted. I'm like, I'm calling in sick today because I wanted to make sure that I was ready for practice that afternoon. Yeah. And got up, flipped on the TV, turned on CNN or Fox News. I don't remember what it was, just to kind of watch the news and saw that second plane hit the tower. And I was like, what? Yeah. And I remember just watching the news, watching the news, watching the news. And there was a house being built right next to us. We had just closed on our house and she was getting ready to move in. And I remember driving to Safeway to go get some groceries that afternoon, looking at, looking around saying, these people have no idea the world's just changed. Yeah. Yep. I remember sitting on the edge of my bed. My wife was actually, I was off the road. My wife was, uh, at the time she was doing hair. She was at the salon. Yeah. And I remember, uh, sitting on the edge of our bed, we had one of those little tube TVs with the VCR slot in it. <laughs> and how's it going? Um, we had one of those little tube televisions with a VCR slot in it. Yeah. <laughs> After we're watching it on there just in disbelief for hours, man. Yeah. You know, just, yeah, everything, definitely a, a, a tough day for the, the, the nation and our world. So, but yeah, but after all that, you know, 2001, we, we hit the road and my wife and I, like she was in the van with us for really? four, four years. Really? Yep. Until we got pregnant. And it, yeah, those were, those were very fun times. Yeah. But also really hard because how do you, on the road, find time and space to be intimate, to argue things out, you know, to have conversations that are need to have in the form yeah. of years of marriage. Yeah. So a lot of that was really suppressed for us being in a van full of four guys really? and being, you know, still struggling somewhat financially because we were putting our money, a lot of money back into production on the road. We were still growing the business. Right. And so we would get home and, you know, we really had a lot of, a lot of conflict issues. You know, we didn't really know how to resolve our conflict. And so they were really good years, but we also really felt the tension of not having that typical space to just be a married couple and be at home together. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. They're, they're bittersweet years, you know, when it comes to, to marriage, it's like some of the best times we've had and some of the worst times we ever had. Did some of those issues manifest themselves later on, like after you left the band or after she was home and you'd be home? Yeah, it really was most difficult after we had our first daughter, Emmy, and in 2006 and at that point she had to obviously get off the road and was at home and I was still on the road over 200 days out of the year and it really was like oh gosh that's hard it was hard man those were hard days hard. you know and I missed them they missed me and it was in raising young kids so Essentially we ended up having, a single mom for oh, yeah, two they, thirds out of the year yes Yes. And we really thrive when we have that quality time together. And so, you know, from gosh, 2006 to 2016, for almost a decade, while we were growing our family, 
You know, those were hard questions. A lot of songs were written out of those feelings of tension between work dreams and family dreams. Mm. That was the core tension for me. And I, and I think all men who are out working and have families and are trying to build careers, but also, you know, really like trying to focus on how do I be a great husband? How do I be a great father? These are real questions that every man asks. Mm. And, and I think I actually got to the point in 2010, you know, we had our third child who was a little boy. His name's Bowen. And he had a severe heart condition called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. He was born with only half of his heart. Yeah. And that wow. was extremely difficult time. We were in the hospital for over four months. It's crazy because the day that my son had his first open heart surgery, five days after he was born in September of 2010, we had our first number one AC like song on the main chart. Really? And we got nominated for a Grammy and I missed the Grammy awards cause I was in the hospital. And so it was like right in front of me more than ever. I really saw those two dreams kind of intention with each other more than ever. And started asking myself the questions of, you know what, if being gone this much, can I really, it's like, I started looking at it. Like if I never showed up to be, on stage or practice with the band or on the road, like, could I be the lead singer of this band? Well, how can I be the husband and father I'm called to be if I'm, I don't ever show up for the job? Yeah. And I really was at odds with those questions and start, that was the beginning of the tension of like, you know what, as much as I love these guys and I love what we do, I'm not sure how long. And I remember there's a song that actually did really well for us called um, Whatever You're Doing, Something Heavenly was the subtitle of that song. And um, that was a pretty well-known song at the time after we had put it out. But I had written that song in my daughter's playroom after everybody went to bed, just in a pool of tears, man, with that Mm -hmm. tension because I felt like the chaos of this calling I had, I was conflicted because I was like, okay, I know you called me to do this, God. But then why is there so much chaos involved in it? And I felt at that time there would be a time for me to step away. But I also knew it wasn't time yet. So I had to trust that there was this Hmm. restlessness of calling or balance in my life that needed to be resolved. I always had a feeling that it probably end with me coming home and stepping off the road. But I also knew that it, it wasn't even like my intended time. So I always say like, there's like the restlessness and there's the release when you have that call, that transition. I was in that restlessness for several years. Really? Yeah. Why did you feel that it wasn't then? I don't know. I couldn't, it was just like that. I guess I would just bring it down to like the Holy Spirit, the gut of like God's changing something in me. He's growing something in me. There were things I think I still needed to accomplish in the band. Not, not even, I'm saying like, success wise. I'm just saying I still had a a place there, a calling there. My gut said, I'm preparing you for a change, but it's not your time yet. You're still growing. You're still learning. You're still fulfilling this purpose. Yeah. And, but in 2015, it was like, that was the year that I felt that release where I was like, you know what? I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, it was my time to step away. What was going on? 
at that time that that and, yeah. and anything specifically that happened that was like okay ding yeah there had been my, at that time you know my family and marriage felt pretty strong but we had been through a lot of crisis because of my job because of me being gone and the demands and and you know some guys seem to be able to just maybe it's the difference too between being in a band and having like a career like I see a lot of solo artists who can kind of make some of their own decisions about when they're gone when they're home but you know when you're in a band you're kind of a you're a little bit of a I don't want to say a slave because that's like a negative connotation but you're you're a little bit like have to be in submission to what the whole collective needs and wants to be doing and we had created you know something that was we had 12 people on our bus you know so we got our tour bus we've got 13 people we're hiring on the road. We've got management teams, agents, and the business is really thriving and we're still pouring a lot of money into it. And so it was this cycle of, okay, if I leave, I'm kind of at the center of this thing in the sense of like... You're the front man. Yeah, there was always a tension of like, hey, if our guitar player needs some time off, then we can get a sub to come in. Or if our drummer needs some time off, we can get a sub to come in. But you can't replace a singer. And so... It was like, for me, I had to be all in, or to me, I had to like step out, you know? Were you talking to the guys in the band about this? As, I was as, afraid to talk to them about it for, for a while until I knew for a fact that it was my time. And how, and long, how long between when you first talked to them and when you left? Uh, about a year. Okay. So I had a little sit down conversation at the very beginning of 2015 and opened up to the guys that had, I think, I think it's my time and, I, and I'd like to give the band a year of my life to try to transition. I'd, I'd sat down with a guy named David Smallbone who, you know, was his daughter, Rebecca St. James had been in the industry and she had experienced a season of burnout and she had walked away from her career and had gotten to a place where she was so burnt out that they felt like maybe they didn't end well, you know, like, he wished they would have done like the farewell tour and like said, thank you to everybody who invested in the band, the promoters and the radio stations and given a good run of like, a, I don't know, proper goodbyes, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he said, and I sat down with him to ask him about that. Cause he manages for King and country. Now his, those are his boys. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca's little brothers. And, and he, I remember him sit telling me like, Matt, whatever you do, take the time to end well and to honor everybody who's been part of building this. And so that was the plan that we put in place was to how do we honor each other? How do I honor the band? How do I honor all these other employees who put their life into this? Give them an opportunity to really absorb this and then have ample time to not only honor what we've done together, but figure out how we're all gonna move forward. What, what did that transition look like for the band Yeah, as, as you were getting ready to leave? I mean, did they, start scouting out your replacement without you or did they include you <laughs> that was a little strange because they definitely started like making some of those decisions and having those conversations on their own which is hard for me you know because they they got and i get it i think they felt like they needed to find who was going to be right yeah to fit yeah they they were honoring of me in that where like it wasn't like they were hiding things from me yeah but um I definitely gave them the space to do that and spoke into it when they wanted me to, but it was hard. 
it was hard. You know, and we had made a lot of shifts because, like, even business-wise, you know, we sold the bus and did make some business decisions to help get the books even so that they could move into a new season uh, with a, a fresh start that there wasn't business debt and that they could start with a new singer no matter what that looked like financially to have some space to not be paying off these these big business debts, you know, or having a note on a tour bus. or And so we really wanted to make sure that things were kind of in a place where they could keep going and not be crippled mm. um, by, you know, by me leaving too soon or by, you know, the cost of doing business and give the people who'd given their lives to us ample time to find other, other things that they needed to. So... But then, you know, so I, in 2016, I played my last show on a family life, love like you mean it cruise in the middle of the ocean and passed the mic to the new lead singer. Really? And they played a, a new song they had written together and, and that was it. We came home and I opened my hands with no idea what I was going to do next. And really? they kind of kept pursuing the new path of the new singer. So me I would have been like spending that year okay what am I going to be doing what am I going to be doing and start start thinking about you know trying to get stuff ready so that way I had to go on running yeah well good you know or or, or did you feel like you needed some time off I kind of needed some time but I spent time with I did have I will say one of the things that was that really was was interesting I had written a song called lead me for the band right it was about being a father and a husband and it was about all the tensions it was about being more present husband and father yes totally and the irony of that song was that the very song I had written that kind of encapsulated this tension between work dreams and family dreams and being present took me away from home even more that was where the real tension happened oh yeah that was the song that gave us the success we'd wanted the radio success the album sales the big tours you know we were out with Casting Crowns and on Winter Jam tour and all these big arena tours. And the craziest thing was when I would sing Lead Me in the middle of an arena, you know, there are a lot of times it'd be 10 to 15,000 people in those arenas. And they weren't always there just to see us, but everybody knew that song. Everybody knew that song. Yeah. So I'd be out there having 15,000 voices sing those words back to me. Wow. And every night it convicted me. And I thought, you know what? I sing this song every night in front of all these people but am I really living it at home? And that was a big part of the decision that I needed yeah. to yeah. kind of sing it less and live it a lot more. Yeah. So, so where'd you go after that, after the band? Yeah. So uh, that song and the story behind that song really opened up a lot of opportunities for me to expand that message. I actually put together a few um, weekend conferences, marriage and men's conferences Um, with the lead me theme to talk about my story and hopefully be able to speak into other guys lives about those very tensions that we all feel. Yeah. And as I did some more of those events and kept sharing that story, a real interesting shift kind of happened for me because it went from me only being in Sanctus Real and only writing songs and only singing to me writing songs during the week with a, a publishing company here in town. Well, funny enough, we actually stayed in Ohio all those years and after I left the band, my wife said, hey, what if we move to Nashville so you can just be in town and, and do songwriting and we can be together? And so we actually moved to Nashville after really? my career <laughs> yeah, with the band. But it was interesting because, you know, so I was songwriting during the week, but 
I was still getting, I went from doing 200 shows a year, you know, to, to basically, you know, doing probably about 20, 25 events a year where I would go out and take my family. Actually, the first year I bought an RV and my family went with me everywhere we went. And we took a family RV, 40 foot RV out on the road nice. and just camped and explored and went to do these shows together where I would sing a little bit. I'd obviously sing Lead Me and sing some of the songs I had written, but I would also share a story about family and what God was doing there with me. And God opened those doors for me. Yeah. And one of the first things that, that really happened was a guy named Bob Lapine with an organization called Family Life called me yeah. and said, Matt, would you consider joining our Family Life speaker team? And so I've been... Uh, part of the Family Life speaker team for six years now. About four times a year, I go to a weekend remember conference. I speak for them. Kirk Cameron called me and asked me to do his events. So for three years, one time a month, we'd get on the bus and go do a, they called it living room reset. And me and Kirk would go out and he'd speak and I'd sing and I'd share part of my story. And we'd end the night with Leave Me. And, you know, so it was like really interesting opportunities I'd never really imagined started opening up and and now it's kind of led to a place where I still do a lot of that I do a lot of a lot of speaking I still do my own music and I still put it out but I don't have a high focus on marketing it um, I've got a small fan base that still listens to, to what I put out and so I make music for them and, and and for myself I still write for their artists I did a book with Waterbrook a couple years ago and most recently we did a documentary about our son's heart disease Yeah, to be a ministry to the congenital heart disease community because we do a lot of work. Mm. We have a foundation where we help support families who are in the hospital who need help financially and emotionally. And my wife really heads up that, but we had a lot of families asking us along the way, Hey, how do I, how do we face this? You know, with a kid with, with, with heart disease or a life threatening illness and, how does it affect your family? How does it affect the siblings? How does it affect your marriage? And we thought, well, maybe the best way for us to answer those questions is to show people in a really vulnerable way what it's like. And so through our son's third open heart surgery in 2019, we made a documentary with a husband and wife couple that had been documentarians for NBC who also had a child that sadly passed away from heart disease. And they actually were looking for a, a way to leave the network to do documentary work, full-time documentary work. And we were looking for people to make it. And so it was a perfect team. We were able to like bring them on to do our documentary yeah. as they left the network. And yeah. they made a beautiful film with us called Bowen's Heart. And, you know, we did the film festival circuit and last year signed a distribution deal out of LA. So We'll actually be having a release date here soon for our documentary on streaming. So nice. Yeah, and then we did end up doing like a, a it sounds really crazy because I never imagined this, but we got asked to do a reality show for a streaming network called Liftable. Yeah. Our original entertainment show. And we said no because I was like, dude, I'm not doing a reality show. It's crazy. But then my wife and I prayed about it. We really got a vision for it. And so we just put out season one of a show called The Hammett's Band Together. It's a family reality show that's kind of infused with meaning but fun you know and and so gosh all these crazy opportunities it's like i don't know what tomorrow brings man you know maybe we'll be doing a circus or something i don't know <laughs> so how's your son doing thanks for asking he's doing good he has had three open heart surgeries now and 
he's really for his condition is thriving. He still has things that we deal with. Um, like what? You know, uh, stamina. He lives with half of a heart, so he doesn't have the same stamina as other kids. He, he gets a little blue sometimes because oxygen levels are a little lower than your normal kid. He can't, you know, run as hard or run as fast or as long. So his body tells him when he needs to take a break. And How old is he now? He's 11. Does he recognize that? What's that? Does he recognize yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, he knows. And crazy enough, he actually writes music and sings. Nice. And we made a record for him, <laughs> a little EP, before his surgery that we put out on Spotify and everything. And, like, it's actually, I'm, I was shocked at how good it turned out. Really? Yeah. And so one of the things that we do now is when my family comes with me, we actually tell his story. And he actually comes out and sings with me. And so that's been wow. a really beautiful wow. uh, opportunity for us. That's one of the things that we do with Save the Storks, which is a pro-life organization out of the Springs, which, you yep. know, um, one of the things we do is we represent them at the conferences that they sponsor. So uh, American Association of Christian Counselors, Ignite Men's Conference, and then there's one called Extraordinary Women that are all really awesome. I mean, it's awesome for us because we get to go into an arena again with, you know, six, 7,000 people. I could just sing Lead Me and tell a little my story. I could tell Bowen's story about us choosing life because we had a lot of the doctors and specialists tell us that we should terminate our pregnancy. Terminate. What a weird word, right? Yeah. 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 And just kind of saying, hey, here's Bowen now. And the doctor said that his broken heart would break our family. But God has really used his broken heart in the only way that God can to actually make our family whole and make our family what it is today, you know, and it's made our family stronger. And so that's part of our testimony as well. How did that change you? Because, I mean, the, the, the two greatest losses that a father can go through is the loss of a spouse yep. or the loss of a kid. Yeah. And I know with Elizabeth's chronic illness and, and that specter of this likely would be my journey at some point. I was hoping it would be 10, 15 years down the road when the boys would be fully grown out of the house, likely married, maybe, maybe have a kid or two. So that way she could be a grandma and get that. Yeah. But, but that specter was always over since, since she gave birth to Matthew and near and almost died. I I knew that this would be my journey Yep. with that specter over you. Yeah. How has that changed you? Well, I'll tell you, it's made me and our family a lot stronger in the long run. But man, there were a lot of moments through the first two surgeries, which were in the first year of his life, when we really struggled, man. I mean, he wasn't doing real well for a while. And my wife and I really dealt with it in different ways. We, we almost The weird thing that happens with spouses with chronically ill children that we often see is that that pain manifests itself so differently in each spouse. And a lot of times, if you don't make intentional efforts to grieve together, you can almost grieve, the grieving can almost tear you apart in a way. You know, that she, and and what that looked like for us was I'm a creative guy, I need time to process creatively. So when we were going through the thick of all that, I needed to be able to step away for an hour or two when you're at the hospital and pray and think and journal. And 
I would like, I wanted her to walk with me and talk with me and be with me and have, you know, like conversations that maybe I really felt we needed to have as, as parents to our son who was, we didn't know if he was going to live. Whereas her way of dealing with it was, I'm going to be at his bedside 24 hours a day, fully invested, never leave, fighting for, his, for the medical care that he needs, asking all the questions, learning about the medication. And so I actually grew to resent the fact that, that she, wouldn't she would never take time away from the bedside to be with, you. To be with me. And she really see that. resented the fact that I could step away from the bedside, even if it was for an hour or two. Why aren't you right here with me 24 hours a day fighting constantly? Why do I have to carry this? In reality, you know, she didn't have to carry it all, but that's what her mother instinct told her. Yeah. And she was being, doing their best to be a good mom. Yeah. And for me, I was trying to take care of, I was trying not to, I was trying to survive in the yeah, way that I yeah, needed to survive. Yeah, exactly. So I could still be a good husband, a, a good husband and dad to my other kids. Yes. In part because I learned this from having a chronically ill spouse. If I'm not taking care of myself. Yes. I, I can't give to my family. Yep. And, and so as much as I love my wife, as I, much as I love my boys, yeah. I've learned that I need to be a priority, the priority in my life, because out of that, all that love and attention and all of that will will naturally come out. Yes, yes. And, and, and if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm going to ultimately shortchange them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, for us, it was just that separate grieving, man. It, it, it really yeah. Yeah. It almost tore us apart. Really? Yeah. What, but, what, what, but was, what was the breakthrough? The breakthrough was us being willing to sit with some... Actually, we had a big breakthrough a few years back when we sat with a counselor. And we, we, we were working our way through it, you know, and yeah. we were learning and growing through it eventually. Yeah. But we let some counselors into our life yeah. who really spoke deeply into those issues. And allowed us to really see each other again yeah. through it, to really accept, yeah. accept the pain mm. and process the pain and not only be willing to mm. face our own pain and some of our own unhealthy responses to pain, but also be able to, to meet each other and, and, and each other's pain as well. And, you know, learning how to just see through our own stuff to care for each other as well. Yeah. And we didn't really know how to do that, but we had some counselors help us kind of step back from out of it in a way and look at it objectively and see the pieces that where we had it wrong and help us rearrange some of our communication and some of the ways that we even saw each other and um, get in touch with the things that we, we really love about each other again and get tender hearted towards each other again, you know? And that was a pro long process, but you know, my wife would now say, and thank God <laughs> after all these years, she would say now, and it just brings my heart so much joy because there was a lot of years where she was just like, when are we ever going to have the marriage that we hope for, you know? And, and, and I don't know. And, and part of me was like, Hey, I'm committed to this marriage. But I don't know. Will we have the marriage we hope for? I don't know. I want to. 
But now she would say we have the marriage she's always wanted. And to hear that after 20 years, I mean, dude, that's, that is like the, the, it's just music to my ears, man. You know? And I know for a fact that we will go through other hard seasons that will come, but I believe that these trials and, you know, as Romans five, you know, talks about just the, as you know, that suffering and that produces perseverance and character and hope. And we do feel that through those trials and through that suffering that we've been through that we now do feel the person, we feel the character and we feel the hope we've experienced the perseverance and through it all, God has somehow used it as he does yeah. to, uh, to make us more like him and better for each other. <laughs> Matt Hammett. Let's get to rapid fire questions. Yeah, man. Right on rapid fire. How'd that stick treat you? Good. You know what? It was, it was interesting. Like, I usually don't have trouble keeping them lit, but for some reason, that guy, I was having a hard time keeping it lit. I don't know why. P- part of it is you're talking. I think, yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> but of usually it it'll burn, you know, keep burning, but yeah. I don't know what the deal is. I will say, every once in a while, here specifically, I've had sticks that feel a little over-humidified. Really? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, not all the time, but every once in a while. So. When did you first try cigars or pipe? Um, gosh, man. So actually one of the members of Sanctus Real for eight years from about, I think he came in maybe 2006 or seven. And he was there till almost maybe 2015 or so, or well, almost time that I left, um, 2014, probably he's actually, his name is Pete Prevost and he's one of the owners of Briarworks in Columbia and they have a, a international pipe shop and they make incredible pipe products. Really? Uh, yeah, they send all yeah. over the world. But he, he actually made me my first pipe in 2000, probably in 2010. Yeah. And so that's when I got introduced to pipes. But I started smoking cigars probably about four years ago. So, and then probably the last two years, once COVID hit, man, it was like, <laughs> that was my intro to becoming a regular smoker. <laughs> Do you prefer cigars or pipe? I actually prefer a cigar. Yeah. Yeah. Why? You know, to me, pipes are a little more work. They're a little harder for me to, to, to keep lit. Yeah. It just takes a little more practice. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just cigars are a little easier for me. A little more convenient for me. I don't got to carry the whole pack, you know? Favorite cigar? Oh, man. Gosh, you know, I love the Illusion Epernay. Love that cigar. I can just go to it anytime. Have you ever had their one-off? No. One-off. Okay. By Illusione. Right. Illusion, Illusione, I don't remember. I don't know Yeah, how I'm not sure how you say it either, so I apologize yeah. if I said it wrong. It, it, so it's a medium-bodied stick that is so freaking smooth. And, and uh, my favorite thing about it is the band is an orange piece symbol. No kidding. And it is just, it's like, it, it, because a cigar relaxes you, it's about peacefulness. And yeah. It's like, oh yeah, peace, baby. That's awesome. And, and, and I fell in love. It was the first cigar that I really fell in love with. I've, I've talked about it on the podcast in the past. I got started in college with Philly Titans. Yeah. From the local gas station and and it wasn't until I was at Focus and I had a poker night in my garage and the head of engineering came in 
and he's a big poker and a big cigar guy, and he brought a one-off before it was bought by Lucione. And it was the first cigar that I fell in love with. And I mean, I fell in love with. Oh, that's awesome. And, and he gave me a couple and he said, have this with a Coke, try it with a Coke. Really? And all of a sudden, all these flavors in the Coke just came up, came alive. And all of these flavors in the cigar came alive. I can't identify any of them, but it was just like, it was just beautiful together. No kidding. And, I'll have to try and so that. you got to try, try one off. It is just, okay. Is that how you say I, I, it's a Lugione? I think okay. so. I've, I've, I've never asked. So, so they yeah. sent me a, a bunch of a hand, some sampler cigars yeah. and, and a bunch of one-offs that I would give to the guests. And I, I need to reach back out to them to kind of say, hey, listen, a whole bunch of people loved one-offs and, and became big fans because I was promoting it on the podcast. Yeah. And so send me some more. There you go. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, man. It's great. Best dollar for dollar cigar you've ever smoked. Okay, <laughs> you know, funny enough, I was, I, I, can I tell a really quick story? Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. So I was down uh, in Texas, in McKinney, I ended up at this guy's house, with this uh, epic home on a little man-made lake, and his builder was there, and he he brought out a box of, he's like, of, of uh, Walt Churchill, or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not, not, not Walt Churchill, um, uh, my bra- I have COVID brain, dude. That's like a real thing. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Like I have a hard yeah. time remembering stuff. Mark Twain. I almost said Walt Churchill. Of Mark Twain Churchill's, right? He said, these are cheap cigars. And for whatever reason, I can smoke one of these at any time of the day and enjoy it. So I actually got on Cigar Bid, like at one point, and found a box of 20 for 40 bucks. So for there, I've got like four boxes of Mark Twain's yeah. in my humidor just because I mean, it's a great dollar for dollar stick I that mean, I'll have with me. And if, if I mean, like after church or yes. hanging out with the guys from church and there's someone new and I just don't know how much how really good into, into cigars. Absolutely. He is, I know it's a good dollar for dollar cigar that if they only smoke like two or three puffs and yep. they throw it away. Pff, yep. You're not right. wasting money. Exactly. Exact same thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's funny. So. Yeah, I got a box of box of twenty for forty bucks, two dollars a pop, dude. I'm like, man, I'm not usually that cheap, but I was like, yeah, but I agree. Like, so I get those now because I'm like, same reason you're saying, and it's and it's almost always a smooth draw, and they almost always an even burn on them. Yes, and yeah. they're so yeah, like you said, they're 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 good. Yeah. For that very reason. Have you tried the memoir, which is the Maduro, or the Riverboat, which is the barber pole? I've had the Riverboat, yeah, but I haven't had the memoir. Yeah, I'm more of a full-bodied guy, Yeah, but I like all three. All all three are solid. I I smoked almost all pretty robust cigars when I first started, and just recently started getting a little more into some of the Connecticut rappers. Yeah like just some more mild cigars. Like yeah. I realized I'm like having a real appreciation for them. You know, someone, I, I think I picked up here one of those uh, Oliva Connecticut's. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, man, that's a good cigar. I could probably smoke anytime, you know, just nice and smooth. Yeah. So. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke. Yeah. So for me, I would have a glass of bourbon. Any it's, specific It's always brands? hard for me to say because I've got I'm always going to different stuff. Yeah. But or if you go over to Robert's I house could, and you I, can yeah, choose yeah. from all of <laughs> at, his At bottles. Robert's house, I would have a Cuban and a pour of Thomas Handy Rye. Ooh. 
So that is a rare treat for me. Two things that are hard for me to come by. <laughs> but in great supply at Robert's house. <laughs> um, thank you, Robert. But for me, I always, like my standard is Weller Antique 107. That's a pour I can always go to. Yeah. That I always enjoy. Yeah. So, yeah. Best place you've ever smoked. Man, that is. Okay, so I've got a spot in Phoenix. It's a, it's a tradition for me. Every time I'm in Phoenix, there's a, a hotel. And it's a, I wouldn't say it's the best place I've ever smoked, but there's something. This is like my spot for whatever reason. It yeah. holds like special meaning. I always take time to go up on this hilltop. There's a hilltop there that overlooks the city. And I go up there at night and I put in the same album. There's one album that I listen to. And I put in that album and I have a cigar. And there's something about that spot and watching all the planes come in and out of the Phoenix airport. That's just really special to me. What's the album? Or do you want uh, yeah, to tell? No, yeah, it's, it's actually this, this, actually I have a little playlist by this artist named, it's, he's called Super Duper. And it's basically just like this electronic music that, and I'm not a big like electronic music guy, but somebody turned me on to his music and it's just got a lot of really, it had a lot of emotion that for whatever reason really hit me while I was on a trip to Phoenix which is why now every time I'm there, I put in that rec- that playlist of super duper songs and then smoke a cigar on top of the hill. <laughs> Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars. Oh, man. There's been so many. I'm trying to think. Actually, gosh, okay. So I have to pick one because there's a, there's a bunch. I will say I told you about the guy I ended up at uh, his house in McKinney, Texas mm-hmm. and the builder who turned me on to the Mark Twain's. Yeah. One of the guys that was there was the very last person to shake JFK's hand before he got into the car. Oh my gosh. Yep. And wow. he, his name is Bill Kennedy. And now he actually leads tours in downtown Dallas. But I just, man, that story always stuck with me. And there's more to that. I mean, he, he had some really, really cool stories. You know, he also worked for the hunt family uh, Caroline yeah. Hunt at the big Magnolia Hotel. Yeah. And they're like a legacy family and oil family in Dallas. And he's yeah. got had crazy stories about all that too. But that he's a historian. So we heard a lot of really neat stories. Marvel or DC? Oh, <laughs> my kids like Marvel. Yeah. So did you have a superhero that you grew up loving? You know, I, always really into lo- I actually personally, so it wouldn't be Marvel, it'd be DC, it was Superman was this, the, for whatever reason, the superhero I always gravitated to, toward. Yeah. I was just talking to my mom the other day about being a kid, watching those original Superman movies. And the one scene that like always terrified me and stuck with me was the little kid at Niagara Falls. Like, <laughs> Same, yeah, <laughs> totally. And he falls yeah. over the edge. <laughs> I know it's random, but we were just talking <laughs> about that day day. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh man, Star Wars. Best Star Wars movie. And for me, just Return of the Jedi, man. Really? Yeah. Like when I was a kid, for whatever reason, that was that was the one that always got me. Favorite food. Favorite food. Man, I can always, always go for just a good burger, man. Give me a good burger. I'm I'm set. Medium rare. You have sports teams? Detroit Tigers, actually, was the team that I grew up 
I'm actually singing at a Detroit Tigers game next weekend. Really? And my son's singing for Kids Day for the National Anthem. Wow. So, yeah, so and that's what my dad grew up watching the Tigers play. And then when we were kids, he would always take us up to the original Tigers stadium. stadium. And then, you know, now Comerica. We've actually, crazy enough, really cool story. Lead Me, the song I was talking about earlier, was one of the, fa- like, he said it's his favorite song. This is uh, one of the guys who, who married one of the Illich kids who owned the Tigers and uh, Red Wings and Little Caesars Pizza yeah. and all yeah. that up there. And his name's Glenn. And he's part of the family up there. And they, I did a, uh, an event there where they invited us up to the, to the box to watch the game, to the owner's suite. And one of the times we went up there, my dad actually got to watch the game with like Al Kaline and Willie Horton and all like his childhood hero players and I was like to me that was like one of the coolest moments you know for me so Hmm. nickname growing up or in the band oh man early days of the band people called me all kinds of things my last name's Hammett they would they would call me the the ham the hamster uh hammy I mean dude I had so many I can't even think there wasn't even one that was prominent Dogs, cats, neither, or both? You know, dogs. We have a dog, and I grew up with a dog, but I always had, like, pretty tragic pet stories as a kid. Like, we always lost our pets in really tragic ways. So I kind of built a wall between me and animals for a while. (laughs) But I've, like, now that we've had dogs for our kids, like, I've become a dog lover again. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Man, that I smoke cigars. <laughs> CCM music, right? People are like, think you don't, sm- don't touch them. You a reader? Uh, I do love to read. I've read less books over the past year. and COVID brain? Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I read tons and tons and tons of articles all the time. So it's like, it's interesting because I've just been telling my wife, like, I haven't read a good book in a while, but I read every day. Like I'm always scouring articles on, it's because I do a lot, you know, I was just telling you with, uh, with family and, you know, with Save the Storks and stuff with Pro-Life, like I'm constantly reading articles on those sorts of issues. If you could live anywhere, where would you live? Wow. You know what? I actually really love it here. I love it in Nashville. I don't know if I'd want to live anywhere else. Mm. Our family's really really loved it so that's a hard too hard of a question I, I, I don't know I do I'll say I love San Diego the weather's perfect there all the time so yes. I wouldn't mind being there for the climate yeah what's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness mm. I think my greatest strength would be well I, I think it's giving my heart to everything I do. I give, I put my heart on the table. So bringing heart and vulnerability to every project I commit myself to and a relationship. I think my greatest weakness is finding the courage to just go for it in life mm. with certain things. I have a, still have a touch of insecurity or timidity, you know, that kind of like holds me back sometimes from, I think, the full potential I could reach in certain areas. 
but I, I'm working through that. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Wow. So many, <laughs> man, think of my dad, honestly. I was wondering that. Yeah. My dad never had a lot of money or what other people might consider, you know, success in business or whatever. He did, he did a great job running his own little business and, um, as a programmer and engineer, but he taught me the lessons that were most important in life. And he's the reason that Christ is still at the center of everything that I do. Mm. All right. Last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Yep. Men need community. And for me, it's, it's been an opportunity to be in more, more community with more men Yeah. and learn and know that also know that I'm not alone at any given time. We're together, right? Having smokes talking about life. It's just been such a wonderful gift to, to hear the hearts of many men and know that we're in this together. Um, yeah. If you could have a Holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. <laughs> wow. I, one of the people that comes to my mind only because for a few reasons, but Charles Spurgeon would be great. Who wouldn't love to have a smoke with like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien too, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, when they were like yeah. masterminding like all these yeah. amazing pieces of literature that have changed the world. They don't um, have to like cigars either though. Yeah, so, okay, okay. And, yeah. It could be any, any three yeah. characters throughout history. Look, man, I'm a, I, I'm a kid of like the 90s, so... Man, if, if I could have a smoke with Bono from U2, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think I, I, would, I would say Spurgeon, Bono, and Michael Jordan. Ooh. I'd like to sit with Michael Jordan. And he loves cigars. He loves cigars. He <laughs> loves cigars. <laughs> yeah. 23, man. He was a big deal in my life. When oh, I was yeah. a kid, I had his posters all over my wall. So. <laughs> he was... It was the best. Yep. Which me as a Milwaukee Bucks fan, I didn't like it, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I at least gave him respect. Yeah. It's awesome. All right. Last question. Yeah. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of that rye that you mentioned over at Robert's place. Oh yeah. What are we celebrating? I would hope that it would be a successful release of our documentary Ooh. that's coming out. So, uh, that do, would be, do you have a streaming partner already? We, we, have, we have a distributor out of LA who has partnerships with a lot of the streaming platforms. So you haven't platforms. narrowed down a stream a, so a platform So I don't yet. think we're going to have an exclusive. Okay. Like it won't be exclusive Netflix or exclusive Hulu or whatever. We actually, we, we almost got one of those, but it ended up falling through. But this guy's done a great job for a lot of independent films. So it'll be available on multiple platforms. Any idea when that's coming out? So we're actually setting a release date next week. Okay. So I don't know yet, but it will be this summer. This summer. Yeah. And what's the name of the film? So the name of the film is Bowen's Heart. And hopefully you'll be able to watch it, I think, hopefully by July. Matt Hammett, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, my man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. 
Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabera shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.